Thank you. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Brother Butcher, and uh, it has been a joy for us. We, we thank you so much for the blessings in our life, and uh, I just hope that you get a little bit. We've got so much out of coming and uh, being here in the church in Australia, and it's just been such a great privilege for us. So much appreciate Brother and Sister Butcher and uh, the people that they are, and uh, being around him, you can sense when uh, just being around somebody, you don't have to be around too long when you find out whether or not there's a kindred spirit there and some of the same values, and I so much appreciate that. It's a wonderful thing to have a pastor that values truth and God above everything else, amen? And uh, it's just been a pleasure, amen, to be with them, and so much appreciate this family. And all of you, we've met such wonderful people. Everybody's been so kind to us, and uh, we have just thoroughly enjoyed getting to know some more of the body of Christ. And uh, if we don't see you again on this earth, we'll see you in the new city, amen? And uh, we'll look forward to that as we come back together for the greatest family reunion in eternity is when the church comes together. Amen. And I'm looking forward to that day. I want to talk to you from the word of the Lord tonight again. And I wonder if we could go one more time to, the, to prayer and just ask that the spirit of the Lord would speak to our hearts tonight. Amen. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be together. We thank you for your word. We know your word is anointed. I pray that you'd anoint me to preach it. Anoint our hearts and our minds to hear and receive, that we would not be hearers only, but that we would be doers of your word. God, we want to leave here more like you than when we came, more in, in your image and in your likeness. Lord, we ask it in your name, Jesus, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord. I want to talk to you, for, set a little foundation for what I want to talk to you about, so if you give me just a few moments to do that. There is a strategy uh, that is designed to break the power of unity, and it's called divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Um, it's, it's probably known as a military strategy maybe to start about, but there's an understanding that if you can bring a division to a group, they're easier to conquer. Uh, military generals in the past observed that it's easier to defeat an army of 50,000 followed by another army of 50,000 than to defeat an army of 100,000. That if we can divide and conquer. And so this has been a tactic that is used. And anything to bring division, to divide up the military, because if we are uh, fighting one another, for instance, if we're fighting one another, we're face-to-face -face fighting one another, well, we expose ourselves to the enemy around us. And the enemy desires to what's called flank us, to get around. So they would surround us if they could, but they always look maybe to get us, uh, get around and get behind, get to the side where we are the most vulnerable. There is a, in, the, in American history, there are, were two warriors in American history. One was the name uh, Geronimo, Chief Geronimo. And another was Chief Crazy Horse. That was uh, their uh, American Indian names. And they are forever recognized in America for guerrilla warfare. These were ancient fighters. And they, uh, there's a famous battle against the 7th Cavalry back in, in the States. And the 7th Cavalry was led by a, name, named, uh, a man named George Armstrong Custer, General Custer. And uh, he was uh, over the 7th Cavalry, and uh, 
uh, it was at a time that Crazy Horse will forever be remembered because he was able to outflank and separate the 7th Cavalry from the rest of the army. And as a result, under their command, they were able to completely wipe out the entire 7th Cavalry. Every, every man and every horse. In fact, there's only one survivor of the battle, and that was a horse. It was General Armstrong's horse. And so, in American history, it has become known as Custer's Last Stand. Very famous battle that took place. And so, our American military was trying to track down Geronimo and Crazy Horse to try to bring them uh, into justice as they felt like. And they never could track them down. They were never able to, to catch them and capture them. These were warriors who, uh, in the terrain that they were in, uh, were so skilled. They were never caught. And so they changed tactics. Instead of trying to track them down and uh, through the military, what they started doing is they started giving food and supplies and horses and other articles to other American Indians. And as a result, they divided and they, their own warriors, other warriors from other tribes, led them to Crazy Horse and Geronimo. They never did it on their own. So finally they just gave up. And we're going to try a different tactic. If we can divide them, we'll get them to lead us. And as a result, they were able to, to divide and conquer. Well, what it took military strategists years to to learn about dividing and conquering, there's another illustration, and that is children have perfected this within the first few years of their lives. <laughs> it doesn't take long for a child to realize is that you never go to mom and dad at the same time and say, I want to go to a friend's house, or I want to go to such a restaurant or a such activity. No, 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 no. You, you learn at a very young age, never go to mom and dad together. Rather... You go to mom and say, Mom, if it's okay with dad, is it okay with you? And your mom might say, well, if it's okay with dad, it's okay with me. And then you go to dad and say, Dad, mom said it's okay with her if it's okay with you. And all of a sudden, mom and dad get in the car and they're wondering, what happened? What happened? A five-year-old <laughs> divided and conquered and got their way. Dividing and conquering. It's a tactic that is used in so many different ways. And it is a tactic that the enemy uses in the church today. Church today. If he can divide and bring division, he can conquer. Israel in the Old Testament came under what maybe we would call superpower status under the rule of David. David was a mighty warrior and he conquered the land and spread out the kingdom. And then his son Solomon, who came and followed in his footsteps, continued to expand and grow the land. And, and Solomon, when Solomon became king, he had a great deal of goodwill because of his father David, who was beloved by, by the nation. While David had focused on expanding uh, the expanding the land of Israel geographically through the use of military might, Solomon, he began to build the infrastructure as David uh, expanded the boundary lines. Solomon came in and began to build the infrastructure and build the cities. And, and uh, his greatest contribution would be the building of the temple, the temple 
in Jerusalem. And, and that would be the greatest contribution. However, Solomon in his building and in his expansion, he began to place a heavy burden on the people. He began to excessively tax them so he can continue to build the infrastructure. And Solomon went beyond his trust in the Lord, maybe as we talked about a little bit today. And he started to trust in his own abilities, his own strategy, and his own, uh, his own forethought. And the Bible lets us know that he began to follow the practices of the world. He began to build alliances with other nations through the age-old practice of uh, marrying families and daughters of kings that surrounded and, and kings across the, the, the sea. And to, to build his, grow, his nation, to build his place, to further his name and his power and his might. But not only did it take place through him marrying throughout all of these nations and princesses throughout the world, it also led to idolatry coming into Israel because as these different nations came into Israel, they brought their gods and they built their temples. In fact, Solomon contributed to the building of temples to these idols of competing nations. And so while David was beloved and he was a man after God's own heart, a man who expanded the nation, Solomon began to build it up. And, and the Bible lets us know that Solomon had a, a builder that he hired, a shrewd builder by the name of Jeroboam. And he hired him to help him assist in establishing the in infrastructure. Jeroboam was originally hired to build terraces. And the Bible lets us know he was to fill in the gap of the wall in the city of David, to, to repair the wall, to make sure the defenses were strong and make sure they were ready in case that there was an opposing army that would come. And Solomon noticed this Jeroboam. Jeroboam was an excellent worker, great craftsman. And, and he, he began to notice how good he was doing in, in his work. And so he began to elevate him. He hired him to run the entire labor force of the house of Joseph, of, of Ephraim and Manasseh. And as Solomon drifted farther away from the Lord, he continued to become more oppressive to the people to the degree that this Jeroboam who he had hired and who had sort of come up through the ranks and come to a place of authority... Jeroboam saw the effects on the workers that he was responsible and started to plant the seeds for a rebellion. Solomon, though, had enough power and he still had enough loyalty because of his father David that he was able to overthrow the rebellion. He was able to keep the nation intact. And, and he put out a death sentence on Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam, he left and he fled all the way down into Egypt and he stayed in Egypt as long as Solomon was alive. When Solomon died, Solomon had a son, Rehoboam, who ascended to the throne. And even though, uh, as Rehoboam was trying to solidify his position, he, he received some bad advice from uh, a nation that was already disgruntled, a nation that was already bothered by the increase of the low that they had. And, and so when they come to Rehoboam and they say, if you will just ease up a little bit, we'll, we'll gladly serve you. And we'll gladly do the, the work that you would have us to do and, and the nation will be strong. But Rehoboam listened to, to the wrong counsel. He re listened to somebody whispering in his ears and you, you've got to show him who's in charge now. So Rehoboam said, man, if you think my father Solomon was tough, you just wait until my leadership comes into place. And, and so the goodwill, though, by this time of David was long gone. And Rehoboam did not have the goodwill that Solomon had. And all of a sudden the nation is split in part two. 
And for the rest of the Scriptures in the Old Testament, you read uh, about the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. Israel becomes a divided nation. A divided nation. Never God's plan, never God's will, but they are divided. All because of this process that I've sort of laid out for you before. Well, you see, Jeroboam has come back in the picture. Because the moment that Solomon died, they sent for Jeroboam because Jeroboam was beloved. He was a man of the people. He was a man that had rose up through the ranks and had the respect of the people. And they bring Jeroboam back. In fact, Jeroboam is the one that leads the party, the contingency that goes to Rehoboam and requests that he would sort of ease up a little bit, not be as hard, not be as expecting. And Jeroboam leads this division that separates nation and divides them in half. And Jeroboam, true to his nature, when he's already demonstrated the skills that he demonstrated that Solomon saw when he first put him in charge of the walls and put him in charge of the terrace and, and then eventually put him in charge of the labor force. These skills and administration and the wisdom and knowledge that caused Solomon to elevate him to being in charge are the same skills that, Rhea, that Jeroboam uses in dividing the nation. And it's there I want to bring you to the text. It's 1 Kings 12, 25. Therefore the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Verse 30 says, now this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests of every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah. And offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priest of the high places which he had made. This is the result. Jeroboam, the, the strategist, he recognizes that although the people are disgruntled right now, although the people are very upset with Rehoboam and they have gone ahead and brought about a division, he understands that eventually this initial anger will start to settle down. It'll start to subside after a while and, and they'll begin to miss going to Jerusalem. They'll begin to miss being in fellowship with their brothers and their sisters. They'll begin to miss going to the house of God and going back to the tabernacle, to the temple. And so he understood that when this settles down and if they ever unite back again, well, that'll be a death sentence for me because I'm the one that led the rebellion. And the first one, in fact, maybe the only one as symbolic for this division that they'll put to death is me. So I've got to figure out a way to keep unity from getting back into Israel. I've got to figure out a way that now that the nation is divided, a way to keep them from ever uniting back together, from there ever being a reunification 
that would lead to his death. And so he understood how they would find unity. He understood how unity would come about even though they were so upset and so divided. He understood that Israel will always go back to the house of God. And he recognized that when they go to the house of God and they begin to worship Jehovah, that it will soften their hearts and it will bring them back together and they'll unite together. And that will be the end of my leadership and even the end of my life. And so my first priority, the first thing I have to do to maintain this division is I have to keep people from going to the house of God to worship. I have to keep them from going to the house of God to worship. I have to keep them from going to the festivals, from going to the Feast of Tabernacles and to the Day of Atonement. I, I have to keep them from the traditions, from going at fixed time at Pentecost to, to the Tabernacle. I've got to stop that. And so what I'm going to do is I don't have the ark, and so I'm going to create two golden calves. And I'm going to put one in Dan, and I'm going to put one in Beersheba. I'm going to put one at the extreme north of our territory, and I'm going to put one at the the southern border at Bethel and I'm going to have Dan at the front at the top and at the bottom and so what I'm going to let people let them know is say hey it's just too much effort for you to go all the way to Jerusalem it, it, it's just too much to expect that you would go all the way to the house of God rather than going all the way to Jerusalem look I've made a worship system that's a little more convenient you, you don't have to go as far it doesn't cost you as much it, it's closer by the way and it's easier. And you have options. You don't have to go just to one place. You, you can choose whatever works out best for you. And here's what he said. 1 Kings 12, 28. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? It may sound familiar because it's almost identical to a, a verse in Exodus. Exodus chapter 32 and four, this is Aaron saying, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Almost identical in phrasing. It's the same sentence, the same purpose that Aaron had said when what? When he had built a golden calf. And he said, this is your God. Oh, you, you can worship this God. And what happened on that day is that the Lord said, no, this is not just a substitute. This is rebellion. This is sin against me. And it caused the, the judgment of the Lord. And what Jeroboam is doing is he is repeating. He's repeating what a rebellious Israel did a long time ago because these were tied to the cultic practices of Egypt that they were brought out of. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing all of these years later when Jeroboam says, I've got to keep people from the house of God. I've got to keep them from the priesthood. I've got to keep them from Jerusalem and fellowship. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go all the way back into Egypt. I'm going to follow the same pattern. And I'm going to build some golden calves. I'm going to say, you don't don't have to go to the house of God. You don't have to take a sacrifice. This is more convenient for you. A man by the name of George Santayana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You see, I see as I apply this to where we're at today that I see a day and a time where there are too many that start to get separated from truth and for a right relationship with God and His body. 
you must understand that biblically you have to have a relationship with God and you have to have a relationship with His body. There is no such thing as just me and God. or We just have a personal relationship with God. That, that might sound good in our world, but that is as unbiblical as you can get. Because it is God who said the church is my body. It is God that who put ministry into the church and organized the church to fulfill His purpose and His call. And the enemy wants to do everything he can to separate and to divide. And it starts with saying, what can I do to keep them from the house of God. I want somebody to know today that anytime there's anything that would try to keep you from the house of God and from your pastor and from fellow believers, I want you to know that is of the enemy and it's a trick that goes all the way back in the Old Testament. What he's trying to do is divide where he can conquer you. It worked in Israel because they died in the wilderness. So many of them, they allowed these things to take place. And what happens is just like happened in Israel. There was an incident. They had some legitimate complaints. They had some legitimate complaints. Uh, Solomon had been difficult and, and Rehoboam had become oppressive. There were legitimate complaints. And can I tell you that when you go to the house of God, if you're looking for them, you will find some legitimate complaints. If you're looking for the perfect church, church doesn't have any problems. If you ever find it, please don't go. Let it stay perfect. <laughs> you see, there are no perfect churches. Do you realize that two-thirds of the New Testament, you know what it's dealing with? Church problems. Because we are people. We are flesh. And even with the Holy Ghost, we still wrestle with this flesh. Amen? We still wrestle with this flesh. And so there is going to be somebody. I, I can be from the other side of the world, but I can tell you this and be right on. And the reason why is regardless of where we're from, we're still humans and we still have human nature and carnal nature. Can I tell you, somebody at church is going to offend you. Somebody, man, it's, it, I, I think it's getting quiet here. Something's, I must be right on where I'm supposed to be. Somebody at church is going to say something that hurts your feelings. They're going to do something that you feel disrespects you. They're going to say something maybe about your children or something's going to happen. And if you're not careful, you'll say, well, I'm, I'm not going back to church. Why, why, somebody did me wrong. You know, one of the things I've noticed about people talking about forgiving and forgetting... <laughs> And talking about careless words and attitudes and letting someone down is, is that sometimes we want everybody to show us grace and mercy, but we hold on to what other people have done with a death grip. We want everybody else to be kind and gracious and merciful and forgiving for us, but we want, we, we want to hold on to what other people have done. Well, they did me wrong. Have you ever thought you've probably done a few people wrong yourself? <laughs> but what happens is the enemy will use something like that, whether it's real or perceived. There are some people, they get something in their heart and it's not even real. It's the, the enemy allowing their mind to, to play tricks with them and run wild. So I, I'm, I'm just giving you the benefit of the doubt. It might be that somebody really did you wrong, but are you going to let that divide you in the kingdom of God? My, uh, my father's from Mississippi and... Uh, Mississippi is in the south. Uh, he, at 16, 17 years of age, he still, they still took a uh, horse wagon to church. No electricity. And, uh, well, they might have had electricity by that time. But their only source of heat was a fireplace. Fireplace. 
And while I grew up in the city, there's something I found very interesting with my grandfather. My grandfather would get these large logs, big logs, to, to split them. And, and when you get a big log, you, you can't just take an axe and split it. It's not, when you get a big log, you don't, it doesn't matter how sharp the axe, you don't just start sort of chopping in the middle of it. He had a very interesting tool that was called a wedge. Wedge is almost like a doorstop, but it would have been steel. And what he would take is he would set that wedge in the middle of that big old log and he would drive the wedge down deep into the middle of the log. And what it would do is it would split that log. What an axe couldn't do, what a hammer couldn't do, what so many other tools could not do, a wedge in the middle of the log would split it. And then he would take the axe and finish it off. And, and maybe a big log might be split in three or four different pieces that you could handle and you could put into a fireplace. You see, that's the power of a wedge. And that's why the enemy, when he comes into our lives, he, he knows that if he just shows up with all of us together, he doesn't stand a chance. If the enemy walks in, we're all together and we're united, we'll start praying, we'll start worshiping God, and we'll drive him out of this in the name of Jesus. So that's not what he does. What he does is he gets a wedge and he tries to drive it into a place in the church because he knows if he can drive a wedge into the place of the church, that it'll start a split, that it will separate. And we we might all still be around one another, but we'll be doing our own thing and there won't be the power that comes when we are united together for the same cause and the same purpose. This is why Paul said to the Ephesians 4.27, Do not give place to the devil. Don't open up a spot for the devil to get wedged into your life. Because once a wedge gets into your life, what you've done is you've exposed yourself. You've been divided and it's easy to conquer. A wedge will get into your life, and out of that wedge, all of a sudden, anger and bitterness and wrath and some other work of the flesh will come in, and the enemy will do everything he can forever allowing you to recover. He'll do everything he can to keep you from ever getting back into the body and united in the body. That's why he also said in the verse before, never give place to the devil. He said, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. He's saying whatever happens in life, no matter how upset it gets you, no matter how it wounds your spirit, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give place to the devil. Don't let him drive a wedge into your life. It would be, allow him to split you from the church and from the body. See, this is what's happening. And even though he's made some options, the problem is, Jeroboam, these are golden calves. But golden calves, they might look good. They might look fancy on the outside. Uh, people might stand back and say, wow, look at those golden calves. We never could see the, the ark because the ark was behind the veil. But, but look at the golden calves. Look at how fancy this is. The problem is, is there was no mercy seat. That's the, the purpose of the ark of the covenant is a mercy seat. Because the mercy seat was the throne of God. It was the seat of God. And if God is not there, if there is no mercy seat, there is no blood, there is no redemption. There is no forgiveness. And all of a sudden you've settled for living a life where there is no blood to cover your sins and there is no relationship with God. We live in a world that becomes so uh, consumed by how the outward appearance is and how it looks and how fancy it is and how it's put together. And it can look beautiful. 
It can look beautiful, but without the mercy seat, there is no forgiveness. And so he said, let's, let's substitute. Let's make it easier on you. You don't want to go all the way back to Jerusalem. You, after all, you don't go, have to go to the tabernacle to worship God. God is everywhere. Just go to this golden calf. Not only did he substitute the house of God, he substituted their feasts and festivals. See, it was geared into them. We go to the house of God. This is the time we go to the house of God. And so what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to put an alternative on those same time periods. And it was, it was close to the same. It was a feast that was similar to what they had had. The Feast of Tabernacles was held on the seventh month. And it was instituted by God to take place right after the harvest. It was a memorial of the wilderness wanderings and a celebration of the harvest. It was on that particular feast that Solomon dedicated the temple and the Shekinah glory of God came. and was so powerful that the priest could not stand to minister. And so Jeremiah, boom, he held a feast. It was even on the same day. He just pushed it one month back close similar after all you don't have to completely change your traditions you you don't have to completely change what you're accustomed to we'll just bump it back just a little bit see once it starts it's a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there until he has divided and conquered once our adversary i had an elder told me one time he said he said, compromise is never a one-time decision. Compromise is a lifestyle. You see, if you'll compromise your walk with God once, you will do it again. You will do it again. Because if you've done it once and it was okay, then it's okay to do it again. And the enemy will start playing that game with you. What did he do? Is he got the wedge in and you allowed it in and says, let's just drive it a little bit deeper. Let's just push us a little bit farther apart. And a little bit by little bit little bit till all of a sudden people wake up one day and they realize that they are so far from God that they never thought they would ever be but it happened a little bit over time they say that if you were to tell I haven't tried this I want to be clear on that but they say if you take a frog and throw him into boiling water he will immediately jump out but if you put him in the water and you gradually raise the temperature just a little bit at the time he will stay in there until he boils to death because it was just a little bit of time that he gradually, the heat was turned up. Where if you would have thrown him into a hot boiling cauldron, he would have leapt out. You see, that is our human nature. That if it's all at once, and Jeroboam understood this, it, it's too much. But if I can do just a little bit at a time. I wonder what the enemy is trying to do in our lives today. I wonder what his strategy is. Where does he have the wedge? Where is he looking for the area of our lives that say, this is the perfect place place to drive a wedge into their life because i want you to know that he is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour he's scouting he's walking around you he's examining you he's looking for every weakness in your life and he's saying oh can i take those hurtful words can i take that action can i take that thought and exploit it to become a wedge to open it up to the flesh so it starts with not the house of God. And then all of a sudden it, it goes beyond that to, well, the feasts are a little different. And then he changed the priesthood. He changed the priesthood. He had a new priesthood. God was, was intolerant. God said you can only be of the tribe of Levi, but I'm going to make a priest of everybody. I'm going to make a priest of everybody. 
going to sort of spread it out and allow a lot of folks to become priests. God was the one that said it could only be for the Levi. You know what he's trying to do? He was trying to please people by saying, let's just bring priests from all of the people. Because they'll, they'll influence their tribe. They'll influence their area. And so instead of Levi, just Levi, we're going to fire the Levitical priesthood and we'll make priests of others. Now, this newly instituted priesthood, here's the problem. They had never been trained in the law. They've never been trained in how you're supposed to lead God's people. They've never been trained on the areas of worship. They might have watched it from a distance, but they had never been trained. They did not know it. They had only seen it from afar. But he thought, well, I'll bring it out here. And the problem is, is they didn't have the anointing of God. God had called the Levites. God had put anointing and blessing upon him. But he had not only to take away the temple, he had also to take away the priesthood. And once God, once the enemy puts a wedge in your life to start split in your life from the church, the next thing he will do is he'll try to get you to replace your priesthood with someone that's not called from God. I stand here very confident in the Word of God. You know, the Bible says that God gives us pastors, evangelists, and teachers. Why? For our correction, our reproof, our rebuke, uh, for uh, perfection into His image and His likeness. You need to understand that when it comes to the true church of God, this is not just an occupation. This is a calling that, that God anoints and God calls and God gives words and God says, you, you speak this word to my people. The Bible lets us know we need to listen to the authorities that God has put in our life. Why? Because they look for our soul. Because one day they will give an account and give an answer. What an incredible responsibility that is. And so what the enemy does is once he can start putting a wedge between us and the church, then he wants to replace he wants to replace the priest that God has put in our life with someone that's not qualified, that's someone who's not called, with someone who's not been trained to start speaking into your life. You need to watch out who tries to step into a spiritual role of authority in your life. God gave you a pastor. That is the way God organized and structured His church according to the Word of God. God didn't put a bunch of voices out there to speak in us. Me or anybody else need to be in a submission and under the authority of your pastor in your life. I am not your pastor. God did not call me to pastor here. He's just sent me to preach the Word of God here. If I or anybody else would contradict the pastor that God has placed in your life, you need to go to Brother Butcher and say, You are my pastor. Why? I know God has called you and anointed you for this area, this city, and this church. As I guarantee you that once he starts a wedge between you and the body, it won't be long until he'll be trying to replace your priest. Replace the pastor, the minister that God has put in your life. And then it continues to grow. Continues to grow. House of God, the man of God, the practices of God, and the people of God. Jeroboam, one at a time, started slowly dividing the northern tribes from these areas. There are 14 references in the scripture to the sins of Jeroboam. Because once instituted, this stumbling block, this wedge, was something they had a hard time ever getting rid of. Scripture records that future kings of Israel, Jehoram, Jehu, Jehoahaz, Joash, Jeroboam II, Zechariah, Menahem, Pekaniah, 
Pekiah were all guilty. The Bible says this, they were all guilty of the sins of Jeroboam. Once something was instituted, king after king after king never could get rid of it. Jehu, who had one of the greatest revivals in the Old Testament, he is the one that called for Jezebel to be thrown to the dogs and destroyed the temples, the altars, and the prophets of Baal. However, regardless of how great a revival that he has, the Bible lets us know that Jehu stopped short of complete destruction. 2 Kings 10.29 However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. Even the great revival, he couldn't get them past this hump because once division had come, and once it continued to expand and expand, it became so hard to reunite. To reunite. I don't know why I'm preaching this here tonight. It's a strange thing to preach on a Sunday night when you're in another country. However, I believe the Lord knows what we need to hear. And I know this, the enemy is subtle. And he seeks to kill and destroy. He's come to steal, to kill, to destroy. That's his whole purpose. And so many times we think that the devil's just going to step in front of us with a pitchfork and horns truth of the matter is, is if he approached us that way, we would recognize him and we would cast him out in the name of Jesus in an instant. That's not how he works. That's never what you see in the scripture. It was also always subtle. It was the serpent coming to Eve and said, did God really say? Let's put some doubt here. What took place in the Old Testament that a nation that God had brought out, that a nation that God had given the land, a nation that had expanded, a nation that had become the glory of the ancient world, all of a sudden is divided, and eventually they're carried away into captivity. 722 B.C., the northern tribes go into captivity. 586 B.C., Judah goes into captivity, and they go into Babylonian captivity, and the nation that God brought out is no longer in existence. And it starts in this process. Division comes. I want to tell someone today, you need to make up your mind is that there are some things that I cannot live without. I cannot live without the church. I cannot live without my pastor. I cannot live without the word of God. I cannot live without the ways of God. I've got to have these things in my life. I can't let anyone. Are you going to let something that someone said keep you out of heaven? Well, they hurt my feelings. They might have hurt your feelings. Is it worth your soul? Well, they did me wrong. They might have. Is that worth going to hell over? You see, some of the times the things that get in our life, our pride starts getting there and furthers the division. And our flesh starts. And if we would just recognize what the enemy is doing, he's there with the wedge and he's saying, okay, I'm going to drive this in. And we don't need to give place to the devil. We need to say, hey, I'm not going to let a day go by that I don't understand. I need the house of God. I need the man of God. I need the body. I need him in my life because heaven is too close for me to be lost now. Jeroboam and Rehoboam both got into trouble when they started to follow the advice of their counselors and not the Word of God. When you have a word from the Lord, when God's Word is preached and you see it in the Word of God, you don't even have to ask anybody's opinion about it. If God said it, that settles it. We used to sing a song uh, 
God said it, I believe it, and it's so. No, no. God said it, it's so, whether you believe it or not. Gravity is real, whether you believe it or not. You can jump off the building and say, I don't believe in gravity. It doesn't matter. It's real. You're going to fall. Why? Because truth has nothing to do with whether you believe it or not. Truth exists. And the ramifications of truth exist whether you agree with them or not. You can say, I don't agree with gravity. I, I don't agree it should be that way. You might not. Good luck to you. But the moment you step off, it's going to have an effect in your life. And it's the same way with the truth of the Word of God. You can say, I don't like it. I don't agree with it. I don't believe it. But its effects will come in your life no matter what. Because it is truth. We need to understand. We need to come together as a church to say we refuse to allow the enemy to divide and conquer us. We refuse to give a foothold to the devil. We are going to unite together under the banner of Jesus Christ and the Word of God and the blood. We're going to go to the house of God. We're, we're going to make sure we don't allow anything to split us off. That's why as a pastor... Just speaking personally, that's why as a pastor, I get so concerned when somebody misses church. I really do. I've talked to somebody before and a young man said, well, it's just a service. So see, you don't understand. Once it becomes a service, it becomes easier the next time. And the next time, unless there's a real legitimate reason and you're missing the house of God, you just open the door for the enemy to start pushing you away and dividing you. When they separate somebody from the herd, National Geographic will show you that the one that gets separated from the herd is the easy prey. That's why there's power when we come together. That's why there's strength here. That's why the devil doesn't have a chance coming into this building tonight. We are here united together. We have power. We have power. You know what Aaron did? Well, what Moses did with that golden calf in the Old Testament, he ground it up. He says, we have to deal with this right now. We're not going to let it stay around. We're not going to let it hang around. We're going to deal with this right away. He ground it up, got rid of it. But the problem with the Jeroboam sins is it kept on for generations to where they couldn't hardly get away because the farther and the longer you're divided, the harder it is to come back. That's why when you sin, something goes, there's, there's sin in your life. This is not something to wait on. This is not something, it's a time to immediately drop to our knees and say, God, I need your forgiveness. I, I, I claim the advocacy that I have. I, I confess my sins because you're faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me of my trespasses. I, I'm not going to let this grow in my life. That's why when you have a disease, when you have a cancer, you want to get rid of it as soon as possible before it can go and affect the rest of your body. This is how life works. If you'd stand with me tonight. I want to encourage somebody tonight to settle something in your mind. That no matter what happens in life, no matter what difficulties come, I'm never going to allow it to cause a wedge between me and my relationship with the Lord. I'm never going to allow it to cause a wedge between me and the church, me and the body, me and the ministry. 
I'm going to understand it for what it is. That the enemy is trying to destroy me. He is targeting me right now. He's trying to destroy me. And I'm going to go to the Lord. I'm going to go to His people. You see, there's nothing that thwarts the enemy's desires more than when you just go right to the body. You're right to the pastor. You're right to the church. And you come to worship. Because you see, you know where the temple is? The temple is located in Judah. It's the place of worship. As long as I can keep them away. That's what Jeroboam said. If they go and they start worshiping again, it's going to turn their heart back. And that's why he wants to keep you away from the church, away from the body, away from the ministry, because he doesn't want you to worship. Because I've seen it over and over again that no matter what had happened in people's eyes, when they begin to worship the Lord, there's a melting that takes place and there's an openness that takes place. That's why worship is so important. That's why it's even dangerous to go to church and just even go to church and not worship at church. Because the colder and the harder your heart gets, whether you feel like it or not, listen, God is worthy whether you feel like it or not. This has absolutely nothing to do with your feelings. This has to do with His worthy, worth-ship, the worthiness of God. So whatever you feel, whatever's going on, you go to the house of God and you lift your hands and you begin to praise Him and acknowledge Him and you'll start seeing that the things of this world go gradually dim and you'll start seeing those things that seem so big that you'll even forget what it was that, that upset you in the first place and you'll see it start melting away in the presence of the Lord. I wonder as they are playing and singing if we could come out to this altar in a spirit of worship and say, God, I want my heart to be open to You and turn to You. I, I don't want to allow anything to come and become device in my life oh God bless these that are already coming let's fill these altars let's come with open hearts let's come with worship hallelujah Lord we come we open our heart to you we open our mind to you to your word to the man that you put in our lives to your purpose to your spirit we're not going to let anything get into our heart we're not going to let a root of bitterness we're not going to let a wedge we refuse to let anything separate us from your love. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, that's it. Let's talk to the Lord tonight. Let's allow the Lord to have His way. God, we're hungry for You. We're open to You.